Here we go. Hi and welcome to this week's episode of Planet Positive Ventures. My name is Julian Guderlei. We are a global think tank, a venture capital advisory and accelerator. We're serving to address humanity's most pressing needs and its symbiotic existence with nature. And so with, with those words, another warm welcome to Peter Crane, the founder of Planet Positive Ventures. Thank you, Julian, for the warm welcome. Um, welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, just really excited about this community and all the uh, amazing potential we have to get the climate solutions we need out there and scaled so that we can all enjoy this, this beautiful, precious planet. And um, yeah, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Peter. And um, today, our virtual gathering features Jeremy McCain. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, Jeremy uh, is an artist with a passion for the environment. His focus has been directed on ocean issues for several years. He's an active Explorers Club member and CEO of Ocean.ai, an autonomous network of marine robots that automate enforcement at sea. And he'll tell us a bit more about that today. I'm also excited for Jeremy to be here because we both share another cohort, uh, the Buckman Fuller Institute's uh, Design Science Studio. A short shout out here, Faith uh, Flanagan is also in the call. Uh, good to see you also here again with Planet Positive Ventures, Jeremy. And then also Jeremy co-founded Ultramarine, the Ocean Action Summit on Sir Richard Branson's Necker Island. The mission is to protect 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. And this cannot be done by simply creating awareness. And so like Peter said a few seconds ago here, this, these groups uh, like Planet Positive Ventures have a unique uh, potential to, to build bridges and, and actual action and action steps. And so Jeremy, welcome to this group and uh, take it away. No, thanks for having me. Um, this is such a good group, and uh, I, I don't always get a chance to, to, to come on Tuesdays, but when I do, it's always such a, a wonderful mix of people. So thanks for having me on, um, both Peter and Julian. Um, yeah, as, as, uh, as Julian mentioned, um, my background actually got started all this. Um, I have a tech background, but as an artist, I became quite disgusted with um, really how things seem to unravel very quickly when you start, uh, no pun intended, digging deep into some of the issues that are uh, facing the oceans. Um, and, uh, and on the ultramarine front, uh, as uh, Julian mentioned, I mean, the whole purpose was to create action, you know, find individuals that were, were doing things. And uh, we can talk more about that uh, offline. Um, today, what I wanted to talk to you about is a project that I started a couple years ago uh, called the Ocean Currency Network. And the real question here is, what is the value of a healthy ocean? Um, you know, uh, if you hear that the coral reefs are bleaching and you hear that plastics in the ocean, uh, to some people that means a lot. To other people, they just get up, they go to work and they carry on life as usual. Um, but at some point, it all trickles back down to every single one of us. In fact, this conference that we're talking at right now is sponsored by the ocean. That's right, every second breath that we're taking right now comes from the ocean. Um, so, uh, you know, fundamentally, what I wanted to be able to do is, is I was doing some traveling, connecting with marine biologists, really trying to understand, um, you know, what are some of the greatest threats? And um, really, what I found was a bunch of different data that really didn't always correlate. And it had to do with the fact that we just didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, high frequency, high resolution data. So I wanted to set out to create something with my team to quantify the true value of marine protected areas. Uh, and so we're gonna talk about that. And but we'll talk about the problem first. So I've already mentioned a little bit that there's this global lack of high resolution, right? It's, we just don't have enough data, which doesn't come in fast enough. 
And I don't need to tell you guys this, but marine enforcement in itself, not only does it not happen in some cases, but it's super dangerous and very expensive. Um, so even if I had all the data right now to be able to kind of present to marine biologists to be proactive, they don't have the resources um, to mitigate some of, these, some of these risks. So what does this mean? Well, it means that at the end of the day, we really don't know what the heck is going on in the oceans. So right now, less than 5% of the deep ocean has been discovered, which means that in many ways, this is the next step to human understanding. Uh, a lot of our future, uh, the keys uh, lie within the deep of the ocean. As cliche as it sounds, it's true. So we came up with a couple different solutions. Now we built these autonomous tools to gather data from the ocean. We did that for a number of reasons. I was actually sailing with, uh, with, uh, with the TBA 21 through the Lao group, um, meeting different chiefs uh, in, in these spaces to learn the ancient practice of tambu or tapu as the Polynesians would call it. These were actually the first sanctuaries. And uh, I would ask them, I say, how do you, cause I've asked scientists these questions. I was like, when you, when you create an MPA and when you, take the MPA away. Because you guys created tambus or, 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 or forbidden taboo uh, and you release them. It doesn't make sense to me coming from my perspective. And he says to me, he goes, well, he goes, we would go fish. And when there was no fish, uh, we would create tambu. And then we would go back and we would count the fish year over year over year. And eventually when there were so many fish, we would release the tambu and go fishing again. It just seems so logical. I just didn't think that I could get kids out of high school and, and, uh, and college to come in and count fish. So. We built machines to do that instead. And, and unlike humans, uh, I can put them to work for weeks uh, at a time and I can run experiments 24 seven. Uh, and um, the one thing I think that's probably the most exciting, it's like collecting scientific data to many people is probably not that exciting. But, but today I think probably everybody will agree that one of the most exciting things is that our systems have the ability to stop uh, taking scientific studies and go after illegal uh, fishing vessels. That's right, we can actually intercept a vessel and in an extreme situation, we can disable their propulsion systems, allowing the, the authorities to catch up to them. But all that being said, we were able to make this happen and we're making this happen for about one third of the cost. So it's pretty cool. Um, the team that I have, there's my ugly mug there. Obviously I'm the founder and CEO. Um, Cody Mark Marks Bailey and I actually sat down at a table and talked about in the very beginning, about this whole concept. And it's true in business. They say, don't fall in love with your MVP because it's going to change. So I, um, we originally had this idea of, of quantifying, you know, a, a way of, of using a cryptocurrency to kind of motivate people to do certain things. But that model changed considerably. And it really came down to kind of flipping kind of the blockchain concept on its head and saying, well, what if we, if we get down to brass tacks, what is blockchain? Uh, blockchain is really a network of trust um, and, you know, using machines to be able to do that, you know. So what we did is what if we collect data from a bunch of different areas and we basically use a series of, of confirmations to confirm that that data is true and correct before it's actually written. So that was Cody and I's first kind of like, uh, you know, forte basically into this whole thing. We basically launched uh, at the World Economic Forum uh, in 20, I guess that would have been 2018. Uh, Cyril Lutterdot is on the team as well. He's our AI and NL guy. Um, and uh, that's kind of the software development side. Marcus Ryman, uh, he's the one that's, you know, he was the one on his vessel uh, sailing through the lab group, really starting to kind of work with indigenous groups and locals inside the Pacific to really understand what are the, the problems 
because I'm sure we all know plenty of startups that are solving problems that don't actually have problems. Uh, and so we really wanted to kind of go down kind of grassroots and really figure out what are some of the greatest challenges and, and where can we fill in the gaps. Uh, Chandler Griffin, uh, he's part of the team. He owns a company called iCensus. And he's building all of our hardware, which I'm going to show you today. And, uh, and oh, Andrew, you saw my presentation at Davos. Wow, awesome. Um, and Dr. Peter Gerges is, uh, he's from Harvard University. Uh, he's also adjunct professor at Woods Hole. Um, he is the one that kind of got us into the whole environmental DNA and scanning fish. We're going to talk about that here in the next slide. But uh, Peter's an amazing dude. He's like, he's like uh, Bill Nye the science guy, but for, but for the ocean. I love him. So we're, let's talk about four main revenue streams, how we feel like we can make money with this particular thing. And we're only going to talk about four today because that's what we have time for. And I also like to have kind of like Q&A back and forth because in, in Hawaii, they have this thing they, they say called talk story. It's much better to talk story than it is to sit there and listen to a guy present all day long. Um, but one is sensing life. Um, so what we wanted to do immediately is we wanted to use two things. We wanted to use machine learning and we wanted to be able to use environmental DNA. So if we could actually teach uh, machines to basically recognize certain types of fish, then we could count them in real time and start to get you know, a tabulation of really what's happening. And over a period of time, we should be able to see you know, an X factor of one, minus one, minus two, plus three, who knows. Um, and so I would ask different areas, you know, what are your most profitable fish? On the, on the reef side, it was groupers and snappers, pelagics. They said, you know, we're, we're really concerned about tuna and marlin populations. Um, which makes sense. So training our machines to be able to look for these things and then also measure um, quality of life in these areas, right? Obviously the environment that they live needs to be um, healthy. Um, otherwise uh, there's not going to be biomass or biodiversity. Uh, so that's really interesting. And so there are a lot of agencies that pay for this kind of data to be able to understand. It could be fisheries, it could be government, it could be private sector. So there's a model there. What I really got excited about, which is number two, which goes into this thing, and we've all heard the term blue economy, right? Um, but a lot of times when that term blue economy comes out, it's the, basically the restructuring of debt, which is okay, right? It serves a purpose, but the blue economy itself, um, you know, it needs to have collateral. And so we thought, well, what if we could actually be, become the auditors of marine protected areas? What if we actually went in and were able to count all the fish, look at what they were worth on the open market, and say, hey, guess what, Mr. Prime Minister, you have $100 million worth of natural capital assets that are floating around in your waters at any given time throughout the year. Um, what if then we could, in a perfect world, borrow against that and say, hey, Mr. Banker, we'd like to take a $100 million uh, loan out based off of this natural capital asset and then you know, perform some other kind of revenue generating thing on island or in that country. Um, Alternatively, if they said, yeah, I don't want to work with you, uh, we, we can go back to our original idea, which was I didn't like the way that Bitcoin and Ethereum seemed to be very manipulative, meaning that I could actually inject a lot of fiat currency to it inflect the, the price of, of the currency itself. And we thought, what if we flip this on its head? What if instead of the market cap wasn't the actual fiat injected, but rather the, the value of the natural capital assets that were living in the ocean at that particular time. And so now that you had something to trade against, uh, then you have basically all of the people holding uh, their, their coins or their, or their, their monetary currency. And then they saw, you know, Peter dumping a bunch of oil in the water and said, whoa, 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 hey, you're affecting our buying power. 
that you would unite a whole group of people to be really interested in the oceans. At the end of the day, people don't care about conservation unless it affects them personally. And so be able to, so we, our thought in the very beginning was, how do we communicate this to grandma? And how do we communicate this to a prime minister or president? Uh, data mining is another really interesting thing. Um, we thought, well, why don't we, instead of having these you know, blockchain systems run these silly little games to figure out who wins the block and, and, and spend all this energy, what if we actually incentivize people to create machines, to collect data, and to service those machines to make sure that they were accurate so that we had a better understanding? And the reason why I think this is super cool, I live in Texas, and there is not a soul, if, if they know what's good for them, there's not a soul that doesn't know how to read a weather map. And people don't die from tornadoes and hurricanes like they used to because we have so much data. We have machine learning algorithms to actually predict storm patterns. And so what if we were able to predict the next major crisis for the ocean so that we could mitigate those risks? This is why I think this could be super helpful. And there are also other uh, different uh, groups that pay for this kind of data. And we thought, hey, we could incentivize people based on how much they contribute to that data pool. Last, certainly not the least, is uh, the shared economy. This came from um, this came from Dr. Peter Gerges. He said, you know, Jeremy, we've got these $100,000 sensors that we take on these expeditions, and we're out doing these experiments, and then sometimes we come back and we shelve them, and they sit there, and may, they may not go out to sea for another six months or a year or whatever. And it got me to think, I was like, hmm, well, what if I just put those sensors on my platform and automated the process to where they could be out at sea for weeks, months at a time, they can run experiments 24-7 and maybe, you know, week one, MIT's uh, buying time on it. Maybe week two, Harvard's buying time on it. Maybe week three, some private sector or government's doing it. This would not only reduce the cost to get these experiments done, but we would get more knowledge as a benefit. So there's some pretty interesting things there. Now, the tool that I use, uh, this is our first system. This is called the Mako, and it was built on top of the jet ski platform. We did this because we wanted something fast and we wanted something that could basically kind of troll around. It's both electric and petrol um, and we can basically grab samples. So we're actually grabbing uh, environmental DNA or recognizing fish. We have a top speed of 60 knots at six zero on flat water, as you can see here. Um, we actually have a prop fouling device system. So the idea is that these will do scientific studies, but if they have to intercept an illegal fishing operation to let them know that they're uh, in violation, um, we'll let them know over the radio. This all does, it's all autonomous. But in a really extreme situation, if we have to stop them, we can do it. And so having a fleet of these systems basically going after illegal fishing operations is super important. I mean, look, if this thing can't rolled up on you while you're out there, it's pretty, pretty scary. I mean, you have no idea what's on this thing. Um, so uh, I think just the presence alone will keep people out, but you know, hopefully we won't have to disable too many boats. Um, so this is just academic information. I'm not pitching you guys. I'm not asking you for investment, just, just so that we know that. Um, but we are currently in fundraise trajectory. Uh, we've got a uh, project with the Australian government that's coming up. It's a 12 month project to do basically uh, water assessment uh, using our systems. We'll be, we'll be grabbing a bunch of other data as well. Um, but, um, but yeah, we're raising, actually today is actually our, our first opening. We're actually opening our, our, our thing. Um, but anyway, that project, I think, will help us really kind of get a, a perspective, not only how to integrate with the, that particular government, but also in a real world scenario, like all, everything has been tests up, up to this point, we'll have a, an opportunity to be able to kind of say, hmm, this is what works really well. This is what doesn't work. 
And after we're done with that, after those 12 months, then we have several other nations that have uh, expressed interest and private companies that will actually kind of go out and kind of deploy some, some deployments there. Anywho, so, um, you know, I know it's cliche when you say, oh, it's a game changer, but I really do think it's a game changer because it's just that we lack so little when it comes to like this, 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 this knowledge. I mean, we just don't know what's going on. And what's really cool, like pharmaceuticals is actually a really interesting um, uh, area for this information because I don't know if you guys know this or not, but they've recently discovered that cone snail venom, that's right, the venom from a cone snail can be used to treat um, uh, pain management but it doesn't have all the side effects like other drugs do. And so pharmaceutical companies are trying to synthesize the venom, right? Well, this is, this is because we've, uh, we're allowed to discover what's in the ocean. Imagine if we were able to continue this process and constantly look and see and, you know, and realize what's there. I mean, one of the big threats that's facing the oceans right now is deep sea mining. And largely because we need to go to an electric revolution. But how do we know what we could use to help ourselves in the future if we destroy that life to begin with. So, you know, we, we're looking at ways that we can help there. Um, one issue that I've been fighting really hard in the last few months with George Rebellion, who you all know, uh, is the issue of, uh, of underwater munitions. And so we're using our platforms now to, we actually can do um, uh, basically scans underwater to actually look for anomalies where maybe munition uh, dump sites occur. Because I don't know if you, you guys may not be aware of this, but the munitions themselves, as they've been leaching, there's 1.6 million tons of munitions that have been dumped into the ocean since 1918. And the casings are basically falling apart, which means TNT, chemical weapons, all of that stuff is leaching into our food and into our water column. Um, so we need to get that stuff out. And so we're working with a group called the International Dialogue for Underwater Munitions to try to help make that possible so we can remove these things. Because um, it's pretty nasty stuff. Anyway, there's all kinds of really great ways that we can kind of connect all of this stuff uh, from research, local fisheries management. Um, but yeah, that's that's the general concept of uh, Ocean Currency Network, what we're trying to accomplish. I wanted to keep it short because I did want to you know, have some conversations. But this is my email. It's easy to remember, CEO at OCN.ai or Jeremy at McCain.com is, is also my email address. So. Um, I'd love to just open it up to Q&A and, and, and answer any of your questions that you guys might have on this particular topic. Awesome, Jeremy. Thank you so much for this presentation, this overview, and also for keeping it, you know, short and sweet so we can have more of an interactive dialogue. I, I totally welcome that myself. Um, there's, there's been a little bit of a conversation in the chat, but also if, if there, anyone has more questions and wants to understand more detail, now's the time to think of questions, write them in the chat, and we'll just pass it around. Um, the first the first thing that came up, and I think I, I already verified it, but it was about them really being autonomous, um, self-driving kind of little jet ski units. And maybe explain a bit more about uh, what you what you kind of um, alluded towards that they can actually um, take out entire boats. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have to be careful with that because people start thinking that I'm sinking boats. I don't want to go that far. Although the first person we did talk to about this was uh, Tommy Remigasau from Palau. And he says, yeah, I, I sink boats. <laughs> okay, well, uh, at least I have a fan in my department here. Um, so uh, yeah, so essentially, you know, what, what it does, it is fully autonomous. Uh, we've developed our own autopilot system uh, on, on this on here. And, you know, we can actually set a course and say, hey, stay within these parameters. 
But as it's actually moving, it might detect maybe some anomaly. It might be maybe, you know, it detects all of a sudden there's a bunch of fuel. Maybe we, we see a vessel and we say, you know what, let's scan, make sure that they're not leaking as they, as they traverse this area. So we'll do a, a 360 and we can actually do a water quality assessment. And if we detect that there's, you know, petroleum being discharged from the vessel, um, we can then alert maybe the harbor master or whatever the authority is in that area and say, hey, this guy's leaking some crap in the sanctuary and he needs to be dealt with appropriately. Um, but, you know, when you don't have these kinds of sensors, you really don't know what's going on. Um, basically what happens is it'll go into a spot, let's say it's on a trajectory, and then all of a sudden it detects basically anomaly. It'll then operate a spiral pattern to actually go out and see exactly how big of an issue it is and report back. Um, again, it's really all about data collection and then trying to figure out how to best mitigate the risk. But yeah, fully autonomous. Hey, Jeremy, um, wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. My question is, uh, you know, how many of these would you have to have in the oceans to start having an impact on on fishing practices and other and other issues that you're addressing? And what would that cost you? How much would you have to raise to to get that impact? Um, yeah. scale? Great question. Yeah. So um, with the, our first project in Australia, uh, we're we're basically need about five of these of the Mako units, and then we have about a uh, hundred. Um, buoys that basically take kind of like slow data. Think of them as like they're taking like core samples for the ocean. So they have these tubes that go down and they're, they're pulling all this data and they're also sensing, you know, vessels that are moving in the, in the area. Um, so for our project in Australia, um, like I said, we're raising uh, 1.8 now. Uh, it's a $25 million project. Um, and, um, yeah, to, to the whole ocean, obviously, there's a lot more variables there. And then you've got the high seas. Right now, we're focusing on stuff that we know that we can, we can knock out, which is marine protected areas. Um, you know, we need to get to 30% protected by 2030. However, um, and right now, it depends on who you talk to. Some people say it's 7%. Some people say 10 uh, Peter Thompson, special envoy to the oceans at the UN, says we're protecting 10%. Uh, but I argue that if we're not protecting and enforcing the 10%, well, we're really at zero. Um, so, um, you know, you know, in each of these areas, I think, you know, for this particular area in, in, uh, in, in Australia, it's not a massive site. It's about a 40 kilometer, uh, square kilometer uh, area. And we've got five systems traversing the waters there. So um, that's, that's a start. Uh, in, in some of the other issues where you see kind of uh, open seas, uh, you know, we're looking at the possibility of creating 50 to 100 foot vessels that can do this for a much longer duration, uh, that can actually process eDNA at sea and transmit that data, send the genomic data back in, in, uh, in, in as real time as possible. Um, so there's, there's gonna be several other iterations of this as we move kind of to each environment. And what I've learned from dealing with multiple countries is that the problem isn't the same. There's variations of the problem. There's a golden thread that links all of us together but there are very specific problems that need to be addressed. And, and so uh, we're gonna start with Australia first uh, and we've got a couple countries in the, in the Caribbean next. Um, and I think what we learn from there, uh, we'll, we'll really kind of fine tune this. Oh, great, thank you. And one other um, just quick question, you mentioned potentially disabling uh, boats in violation. Hmm. You know, what about the flip side of that coin? What if they're shooting, shooting your boats out of the water? I, I, I mean, does international uh, maritime law give you rights to go after them if they blow up one of your uh, drones? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question that does come up from time to time. Uh, first of all, I don't know if you've tried shooting from a boat, 
but um, I have. <laughs> it's not very easy. Uh, but look, you know, if you shoot one of my boats and disable it, good on you. Um, uh, you know, we've we've thought about that. We've put some kind of measures in place. <laughs> um, but but let's but in all seriousness, um, you know, the reason why we're working directly with these governments is is so that we can act as an extension to their enforcement arm. So um, really, it's like eyes and ears with a really quick to stop them. You know, it's like a consider it like the I don't know, like, you know, like when you try to try to re-enter into the rental car area and it says, don't come in here, you're going to deflate your tires. I mean, that's really kind of what we're doing there. We're just trying to slow the guys down so the authorities can catch up to them. And yeah. the way that this is done is it's, there's a, it, it looks like, it look, this basically the little carbon fiber strands. They look like, uh, looks like hair and it goes underneath the vessel and in a jet propulsion system, it actually sucks into the interprop and completely mangles up the interprop. Uh, with a regular prop system, it completely, you know, hoses up those props as well. So to get that cleaned up is really a pain. And it, also to be clear, that process isn't necessarily environmentally friendly, but I don't think that we're gonna have to do it too many times. As, 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 a, as a Tommy Rimigasau said to me, he says, you know, I sunk these three Vietnamese boats because I wanted to send a message. He goes, you sink a boat, you send a message, you don't have too many boats coming in and testing one. They, they really want the least path of resistance. And so I think if you show them that you have tough enforcement action, you're really not going to be focused on this. The good majority, I joke around saying this is the exciting part, but really and truly the majority of the work is all scientific. Are these, are these um, constantly transmitting data or are they storing it on a hard drive and bringing it back to shore? No, it's as all, all, all real time as possible. Uh, we're using LTE and nearshore, and then we're using satellite bursts. And then we're looking into possibly in, in really remote situations, looking into future connections with Starlink. Cool. And when and final quick question: To what extent do organizations like Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd, who I'm a fan of, um, to what extent are they actually helping address this issue? Do you, you know? Yeah, I mean, so I, I had some. I have had several conversations with Captain Paul Watson about this, and you know, he and I had a chat about Palau, and um, you know, Sea Shepherd actually had a, a deal with Palau to kind of help you know uh, mitigate their their areas and. Um, then there was an issue with the Japanese and it just everything gets kind of super political and the Japanese didn't want them in their waters. They ended up kind of not working in Palau. So, you know, Paul loves this idea, by the way. Of course, you can probably imagine. He's like, how can I have one of these on my boats right now? Um, the, the, this isn't a product that I can just, you know, sell and say, oh, hey, here's a drone. This is, it's not a G DJI drone that you can go just kind of deploy. I mean, it's, it's a, it is something that we still control. Even, even in Australia, we have a team here in the United States that's still managing it alongside the government. Um, so it, it's kind of a tricky situation. But those guys I'm not working with. Um, I, I admire the work that they do. I'm a big fan of the Sea Shepherd. Um, and, you know, um, and, I, and, and you could probably see like some of my influence for stopping these boats <laughs> comes from the Sea Shepherd because I, I believe that, you know, some of the stories that Paul's told me over the years that you really need to kind of take a strong stance in order to make a, a large impact. Sea Shepherd doesn't mess around, but uh, I really love what you're doing. I love the idea of, of uh, monitoring the oceans with drones and um, if you can monetize it, awesome. But I also really think that you could get um, I wouldn't be surprised if you could get all the funding you need from from charities that are already addressing the oceans um, sure. to take you under their wing. But, but yeah, awesome work. Thank you so much.
No, thank you for having me. I have a quick question for you. Yeah. Um, I, 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 it was very impressive when you were, the whole idea is impressive and I have been enjoying listening to you and how you have, you guys have actually covered so many different angles um, and that's impressive and beautiful. Would you be able to please touch a little bit more on blockchain mm. and specifically the whole, the, how you are running it that way and also about the mining? Mm, the mining section that you spoke about. That's a huge problem we have with blockchain systems. And I am very interested to know what you guys are doing there. Yeah, sure. All right, well, quickly, so uh, Jeremy, I just wanted to mention that um, Violet's our, our newest partner. So just want to say <laughs> welcome to Violet and let everyone know uh, who she is. Yeah, Violet. So I'll start with the mining mining aspect first. Um, you know, I I think so. For those of you that probably don't know how it works, essentially just in a real quick recap is that in order for uh, a blockchain transaction to happen, there's a series of miners that basically witness the transaction, but they are also presented with a game, essentially a video game. Well, let's call it right, and they have to solve a, a mathematical problem. And whoever solves it, it's hard. It's a hard problem to solve, but it's an easy one to check. And whoever solves that problem first wins the block. But in order to get that, it requires, as you mentioned, an enormous amount of computational uh, power and electricity and blah, 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 blah. And I thought, well, hmm, interesting. What if we could actually you know, create buoys and say, hey, let's make sure that these buoys and the parts cost less than 200 bucks. Let's incorporate locals to deploy them, manage them, and then collect temperature data, wave height data. Uh, pH, salinity, all these different types of things that are super valuable for scientists and the kind of thing that they would pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars using very expensive equipment. Uh, Dr. Peter Gerges said to me, he says, Jeremy, I would venture to bet that our super expensive sensors next to your over-the-counter sensors, the delta is probably not too far off. Like if it registers 19.7 degrees Celsius and yours says 20 degrees Celsius, it's, it's, it's okay. We know that that's a safe range that we can operate in. And so we thought, well, this is a really great way to get people in the water, right? Um, just like you would teach kids how to swim, to see the coral reef. I think Jacques Cousteau said it best. He said, people will protect what they love, but they cannot love what they don't understand. Getting them in the water, getting them with the data, giving them the ability to touch this stuff and then be part of it gives uh, them a, a great opportunity to be able to kind of connect this. So we did this thing where we first started with uh, basically just on Ethereum, which I don't think is the best uh, blockchain at the moment, but for us, for a development standpoint, it was fine because there's a lot of developers out there. And what we did was we said, okay, let's create a series of smart contracts. Let's create 360 million uh, NFTs, which are, uh, they're basically non-fungible tokens that have smart contracts that are, t that are tied to them. And let's say, let's grab, you know, say, okay, in this one square kilometer, um, there are all these different buoys and these buoys are owned by this particular contract. And we can actually manage the data that comes into those places. And so the best case example I can, I can explain to you is because again, blockchain is about a network of trust, right? We always get into the weeds with how much is Bitcoin worth? It's just, it's a futile conversation. Um, but what if we said one buoy is reporting it at 21 degrees Celsius. The other one says 21 degrees. The other one says 21 degrees. And then another one says 57 degrees. You're like, whoa, why, why is this one section of the ocean on fire? Well, there's three confirmations that say it's 21 degrees. So it's obviously 21 degrees. There's something wrong with that sensor. Let's send a notification to the, to the owner so they can actually go do something about it. And now what we have is we have a system that's governing itself without human intervention. 
And really when we come back down to this whole thing, if you talk to any marine biologist or anyone in the ocean space, the one thing that they keep saying over and over, and I heard it at COP25 this, this year in, uh, in Madrid, is like, you know what we really need? We really need a network where we can have oceanic data, where we can build on top of, and we can work together. And I was like, yeah, no kidding. That's what I've been working on for the last two years. Everyone keeps saying the same thing, but no one's acting. Going back to, uh, I think it was Andrew's point, the reason why he's doing his, his event. It's like, you know, people are talking, but they're not doing and so we wanted to be able to create this network that not only that I could develop di distributed applications on top of, but if we brought in Palau and Jamaica and you know the BVIs, who knows, locals there could actually manage that. The other aspect of this is a lot of scientists go to these places to study, uh, and then they come back and oh look at this amazing thing that we've discovered and we're doing this thing. Well, meanwhile, the local countries like yeah, you came into my waters to discover what is in my waters. So I wanted to be able to have basically kind of uh, ownership of the of the of where that intellectual property started from. So kind of like you have permits to go out to go do certain kinds of things, we want to be able to assign basically these um, permissions to uh, via these tokens to be able to track who does what and where and when something is done. How do we trace that back to that country so that if there is ever a financial thing that comes back to them, uh, we can actually track on who did it, when, all that kind of stuff. So. This was really, uh, the network in the blockchain aspect of it was really about trying to find ways to bring us all together and bring the financing component together as well. Because, I mean, let's face it, humans rarely do the right thing unless they're faced with their own mortality or if they see some kind of financial gain to do so. That's just the one language we all seem to understand is money. So are you essentially uh, turning this into a data mining project? as far as the the solving of the blocks mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. this is i would love to dive into this a little bit more uh, for multiple reasons with you later on but thank you for that no worries yeah thank you violet for that excellent question um yeah jeremy there's there are a bunch of questions in the chat um i'm gonna try to summarize a few of them because people are really curious about those drones and what they're capable of and their full potential and um you know, you said, I think kind of paraphrasing Jacques Cousteau's words around people can only really care about what they understand and know and are aware of. And so um, surface of the ocean, uh, I think I kind of get that picture. Now, if we go underwater, you know, um, submerging. So is there any plan for that as well? And do, mm -hmm. do you think that's where the drones might be able to go? Yeah, we have. So we have, it's just like, a, you know, you have a toolbox, not with one tool, but you have multiple tools in the toolbox to get the job done. And so, um, of course, I'm showing you the most sexy one that we have now because it gets to stop, you know, vessels and it goes really fast. Uh, I did a live Facebook of our first launch, I guess it was like in August. So we did a test in, in, uh, in Florida. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be so exciting. It's going to be like SpaceX. And, you know, they sometimes they blow up rockets and it's exciting. And then we were collecting data. Uh, with a completely electric catamaran system that we developed and they're like oh so what are you doing jeremy i'm collecting data it's so exciting really was an entertainment value <laughs> so but what was really cool about it is that you know we have the the tools that can actually they, they're looking underneath so this system also looks underwater as well it has just you know kind of surface level but we also have the ability to deploy rovs so we can actually go to a specific location and we can drop down three or four hundred feet and scan what's down there so we can use uh, and, and Chandler and the team have, have been perfecting using LIDAR under, under, the, under the water for mapping. So there's a lot of really interesting things. A, a lot of what comes back to us, though, is people that say, this is the one thing that we really want to know about. They always start with, with um, uh, you know, water quality. 
that's an easy thing for us to do so we can easily knock that out. We're, we're talking to a group right now that, that, that is creating artificial reefs and we're measuring the pH and the salinity around this foreign substance that they're putting in the water. But we're also counting fish to see what that biodiversity increases. Exciting, awesome. We have a few more questions. I'm gonna pass it to, to Joanne. Joe, do you wanna ask a question? Yeah, Jeremy, thank you. First question, um, are you working at, lot, um, at all with the Aegean Sea, the Aegean Ocean? No, I'm um, not. Okay, I would love to connect you. I'm on the board of the Aegean Film Festival and we're working with UNESCO and um, the Aegean Sea is effectively dead and there's a lot of marine biologists in the European Union and a lot of big Greek families funding the regeneration of, um, of the reefs in the Aegean Sea and this could be a really interesting project for them. Uh, the other idea, Prince Albert of Monaco, he's been spending a lot of money. Have you, are you working with them? I'm not working with them, but I've talked to Albert a few times uh, about it. And, um, you know, I, I, I would really, it's always, it's always ends well. It always like, yeah, let's, let, yeah, let, let's, let's talk more. And I have like some of his people, but it always is like, it's email that kind of just goes out there. And I don't know, it's, it's like, it's, I feel like sting. I'm sending a message in a bottle. Okay, so there's a couple of people that might help triangulate that. Okay, cool. Positive we can connect you with. And, and also in Australia, there's a number of networks of ultra high net worths that I'm involved with who get behind things to do with oceans. Um, and through Planet Positive, we can connect you with, with those people. Yeah. Um, and one particular group is called the Major Projects Foundation. Have you been dealing with them? I have not heard of them, no. Um, they're repatriating, there's like 200 old military ships that are just on coral reefs, like time bombs throughout the, throughout the South Pacific. Mm. And they're leaking oil and mm. literally it's an environmental time bomb. And they're doing a project to try and um, contain the oil so it doesn't leak into the reefs. Um, and there may be a triangulation with them. Yeah, I mean, if it, if there's if there's war vessels, I guarantee you it's more than just oil. And from especially the work that George Rebellion and I have been working on the last few months, we're finding that a large amount of the munitions that are dropped. Because what most people don't realize, you think about TNT in the in the water, you think, well, don't touch it, you'll blow up. Yeah, that's kind of a big problem. But what most people don't realize is that TNT has a half life of five thousand years. I guarantee you that there's TNT on some of those vessels. And they are the car these the chemicals that make up TNT are direct um, um, carcinogens and endocrine disruptors and so um, yeah I don't want to go into the weeds on that but I, I can I can I can I'd be more than happy to chat more with you on that. And one other question: uh, as a filmmaker, is there a potential to put um, cameras on these um, vessels? Yeah, no, we have cameras on them. Uh, we've been touring with a bunch of different types of things. Um, in the very beginning, it became kind of, you know, challenging because it's like, you know, you, you do all this really cool stuff and then all of a sudden something really simple stops you up. And one of them was we were trying to get real time footage off of the HDMI feed at a, at a low cost because you can get like stuff like a black magic to do that. Um, and we ended up making something on the Raspberry Pi and it works just as good. And we did it for like less than 90 bucks, which is pretty cool. So, yeah, we have the capability of not only filming on board, but actually transmitting that footage back um, when it's near to shore. Using LTE, um, like in our Florida test, I had zero lag, uh, you know, I had no cutouts or anything. I was really surprised, but we were using Verizon's LTE, so we haven't tried all different types of LTE, but yeah, we could do that. And one other name I'm going to drop in, um, the HHMI, Howard Hughes's Foundation. Have you talked to them? 
I have not talked to them. I'm familiar. Okay, well, we can triangulate you with all that. Yeah, great. Thank you. I'll go back around to another question in the chat, which is about the carbon footprint of the, the drones and, you know, how you're continuing to develop them and if there's any, you know, chance to kind of re reduce reduce that footprint. Great question. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it's kind of that, uh, I mean, at, at the end of the day, uh, we're burning, burning less fuel than uh, some of your packages are being shipped off in shipping containers, but at the same time, we're still burning fuel. Um, it's kind of it's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Right? You know, somebody asked me about driving a Range Rover, um, and and then said, "What what's the best kind of car to get?" And I told him, I said, "Buy a Jeep Wrangler. That's the best car that you can possibly get right now." And the reason for and you can actually research this. It's worth a Google. Um, is that they've been making this this uh, same body for I don't know how many years. Um, and when you look at you know basically the carbon footprint of creating a, a Prius or a Tesla, or, you know those those are big issues. And one of the things I'm really trying to figure out is how do we perfect the battery technology? That's really what's going to be the issue here. Is um, our battery technology is over 70 years old? It was. It was this lithium battery was created by a guy by the name of John B. Goodenough, which I think is funny, because the technology is only good enough. And um, but he is working on a solid state system. I've been talking with um, Jong Lee, who is also our sponsor for Necker Island this last year, um, who owns Standard Graphene, and they're the only company on the planet to actually continually create um, a, a graphene in the exact same format. So it's very consistent, whereas other manufacturers are still struggling with that. Jung and I are talking about, you know, what, what could we create a graphene battery? Could we create a solid state system? Once we do something like that, absolutely, we'll get there. Right now, um, my bigger issue is the, is the eradication of species from the ocean. Um, we are losing species from the ocean at an unprecedented rate. You know what? If we've got to burn a little fuel to do it, then so be it. Because some of these, we have to realize, in my lifetime alone, I'm 43 years old. We have lost 50% of the biodiversity, biomass inside of the oceans, and 97% of the tuna from the last 10 years. It's crazy. So, um, so yeah, it's a problem. It's something that I'm addressing, but it's it's something that has to be uh, done at scale, and that's really the issue. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, Jeremy. I think people overlook the fact that the oceans absorb about ninety four percent of the energy from our carbon emissions, which I think are what about thirty eight billion tons a year now. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, obviously, it's very detrimental to the oceans, but um, it also creates a two, about one to two decade lag in 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 how we experience those effects on land. So, um, yeah, the oceans are really taking the hit first, and. Uh, Without life in the ocean, humans are gonna have a real, real struggle surviving on Earth. As Dr. Silviero says, no blue, no green. Yeah, I was just about to share in the chat, but I'm gonna jump back into the microphone here. Jeremy, I'd love for you to maybe do a full circle to blue collateral and and you know, maybe some ideas about how to represent the rights of nature as we're going into this, you know, kind of yeah, what you both just addressed it's 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 kind of a slippery slope right like we we will need to burn some more fossil fuels for some of those massive actions to take place to make visible and transparent a lot of the nefarious pieces that you know were kind of happening in the invisible before and so um yeah what's what's possibly a, a way to do this through blue collateral and giving rights to nature and protecting them in a different way than we have so far well, I think the real thing is, right, is like, what is the value? What is the value of a, of a healthy ocean? I keep asking that question because I don't think that 
when I ask that question to many people, they don't really get it. They're like, oh yeah, 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 we need to have, no, no, what is the financial value of a healthy ocean? And uh, I said this to um, some ministers in Jamaica and I pointed out to his waters and I said, look, imagine if this was a warehouse and you had you know, goods that you sold, but you had no one to count the goods. How do you know if you have any left to continue to sell? Um, and, but what I really wanna get people to realize is that that life is worth more financially to you in the ocean alive. I think we need to, you know, I keep quoting Sylvia, but I, I think we need to really start thinking about uh, not, not, not sea food in the ocean, but sea life. The sea life is really what's gonna help us. And, you know, and I think when we look at you know, this blue collateral, I think what we can do is we can say, look, we know that there's a market for it, but you know, unlike gold, silver, oil, you know, I, I live in Texas, so uh, it's not uncommon for someone who has mineral rights to come in and say, hey, I've got, you know, X amount of uh, barrels of oil in my land, but I don't have the money to extract it. Could I get a loan based off of how much is in there and then collateralize that into something else? People do that all the time here. And I thought, well, why can't we do that with fish? If we know we have $100 million worth of fish swimming around, why can't we just borrow against it? If we can't borrow against it, then why don't we, and because the banks may not want to work with us or whoever knows, then why don't we just create our own crypto currency that's based off of the, the, the value of that. And then if, you know, becomes a real issue, there's countries like Palau. They came to me at one point and said, you know, we don't actually have our own currency. We actually use the U.S. dollar and our constitution allows for us to have a currency. And I thought, hmm, interesting. Well, what if they just declared that this was their currency and their, and their currency was uh, something for the ocean? The second that they did something like, if they were to do something like that, then they, they would basically send a message to every single person that not only comes to Palau, but the people that live in Palau, that the life of the ocean directly impacts their buying power. And I think when people start to realize that kind of incentive, then all of a sudden conservation doesn't become conservation, it becomes regenerative. And that's really where we need to get to. You go to my website, that's the first thing I say to everybody, sustainability is dead. I don't even want to hear that word anymore. We need to focus on a regenerative society and we need to start by allowing the, the, uh, the oceans to, to grow. And um, the only way I know how to do it is, is to leave it alone. Um, a lot of what I've built is based off of a, a, a case study that you guys can look up from Mission Blue uh, at Cabo Pulmo. Uh, Dr. Sylvia and Earl and I were chatting about this once and she said, you know, when they first did this, there was hardly any life. And I went there after they had locked it up for 15 years. And she was, Jeremy, it was like, I remember the oceans 50 years prior. So it just tells you in a very short amount of time, you know, humans are the problem. If we just remove that equation for a short amount of time, we might have enough fish for the next 250, 300 years. But we're so short-sighted the way that we think we see things. And a lot of it is because we've, we've got these stop gaps. It's out of sight, out of mind. And what we really want to do is we want to bring this attention on the most common level. I want grandma to understand this. And I want president so-and-so to understand it. It needs to work on all scales. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for those inspiring words. It's such an honor to have an expert like you in our midst and, you know, get to share and have this interactive Q&A. Um, and there's there's a lot to do and to learn for all of us to, you know, as, as you said, make the value and the worth of our natural world visible and then make it count in a way that allows us for a truly regenerative economy, a truly regenerative system and, and the way we build society. So thank you so much for today. Everybody, thank you for showing up. I shared the uh, weekly link in the chat as well. Make sure to uh, invite aligned people that are aligned with this mission. And for today, have a fantastic uh, day, afternoon, or evening. Thank you so much.
and don't and don't forget uh, to be here next Tuesday to hear Christopher uh, talk about his peer-to-peer -peer carbon transactions on the blockchain. Guys, thank looking you very much forward to seeing all of you next Tuesday. Have a good week. Uh, stay well and keep safe. <laughs> thank Thanks, Jeremy. Great thank job, you. Jeremy. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks. David's good to see you, man. Good to see you, man. Awesome. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to Bye. see you. Hey, Lena. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks. Thanks. Hey, Thanks. All right, no worries. See you later. See you. Here we are. This is your host, Julian. Thanks for listening. I hope you truly enjoyed this episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast and received some insights, knowledge, and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life, relationships, and business, and the way you show up as your best self for the world. Did you know that we just launched a participatory Patreon asking you for your contributions of content and gifting a monthly subscription to our shared mission? The Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, video interviews, and community is growing, and together we can make it count and carry big ripples. So go and check out the Patreon. It's linked out in the show notes of every episode. The Patreon for Green Planet, Blue Planet, and the community we're building together. Thanks for choosing to support with your time, money, or content. And that being said, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe, review the show, share it with a friend, spread the love, and have yourself a stellar day. All the best. Mm -hmm.